Ah, my creation is almost complete. Just graft the dead man's mustache onto the other dead man's lip, cover this dead man's head with another dead man's pubes, and voila! I finally have someone to pick up the slack around here. Charlotte Stein, help review these goddamn movies. Young Frankenstein. More like Hung Frankenstein. Ah, it's alive. It's alive. Towering Inferno make flaming high rise in my pants. Ah, okay. I don't don't even know what that means. Godfather Part 2 is considerable achievement. It is epic about the underbelly of America. What the fuck? I mean, The Godfather Part 2, more like The Godfather Farts Poo? Good, Schallenstein. Good. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote that at about 2.30 in the morning. Coming soon. This summer. At theaters everywhere. Opening weekend. Read it R. Welcome to episode 66 of Opening Weekend. I'm Jason O'Connell, and I am once again joined by my dear friends Fred Berman and Dan Matisa. And this week, we travel way, way back to December 12th, 1974, and the release of The Towering Inferno, Young Frankenstein, and The Godfather Part Two. Quite a weekend in film history. Uh, but before we dive in, Fred and Dan, what, if anything, do you remember about Christmas 1974? We were all alive, right? Were we all alive? Oh, we were barely. <laughs> we were barely alive. alive. Yeah, but Dan, when, you were born in 74? I was no. born October 73. So at oh, this right, time. you were alive was... for The Exorcist. <laughs> that's what we remember from for last year. The actual year. exorcist. He was actually there. I was alive for my own exorcism <laughs> at a, as a newborn infant. No, the. Uh, well, the, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, so this was my second Christmas. So I'm yeah. assuming that I received things like a diaper change, you know, <laughs> a baba, a woo woo, a hoo hoo, and a foo foo. I don't know what I got, but I'm sure it was great. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, I, I was probably less confused than I was the year prior. Yeah, sure. I would be, <laughs> that makes sense. I'd be, I'd be willing to bet. That uh, uh, that I was starting shapes and light were becoming a little more more crystal clear. I was probably recognizing other humans as who they were. Perhaps that's fantastic. Does one recognize one's mother at one year and two months, or oh, is it like yeah. that's a nice lady who feeds me? Mm, I think yeah. I think it's more I towards it's that. Maybe really? it's more towards the second thing. You think? Yeah, Fred? I think so. At a year and two months? I don't know. I can't remember what I did 10 minutes ago. No, I know. But I mean, like, but you've had kids. You have kids. So you more recently went through watching a human be a year and two months. (laughs) Oh, that's right. I do have kids. You saw it from the other end. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yes. No, we would know who our parents were at that point because yeah. you yeah. think? I, 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 I think so. Yes. And what else are you starting to take in at, 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 one, at just a little over one year? You're not. Am I walking at this point? Am I? Am I? Am <laughs> uh, I you able might to, be. It, it, uh, it depends. Yeah. Usually it's around that point when when the kids start to walk. You uh, really should be, Dan. If you're I not, should be. then you were you were underachieving for your was age. I, well, as always, I was. Mo- so I had mobility. I, I had motility through the house, <laughs> which means I had to watch out for corners. Right. <laughs> that would probably have been a good thing for me to be doing. They say that in the towering inferno. Watch out for corners. <laughs> Did I leave? Well, we'll talk cliffs, about that. They'll get you. The cliffs will get you. <laughs> um, was I, uh, was I, let me ask you this. Was I sleeping in a still, would I still have been sleeping in a crib or was I in a bed yes. or in a drawer or something? <laughs> you may have been in a crib at that point. You may have been in a drawer. I don't know. Did they use cribs back then? I mean, the seventies was like, there were no, I know. I mean, <laughs> like they, they didn't have car seats. You were lucky if you slept on the hood of a car in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't, it, yes, it, it but just, we had cribs. Did you, do you not remember having a crib? Do you, yeah. I know. No, I had do a you crib. remember your crib? Yes. I, I remember Really? You mm-hmm. remember your crib? I do. I remember my Come crib. Come on. Well, no, and, tell us all about it. Uh, wood, uh, you know, slats. <laughs> You're thinking of jail. You're thinking of no, when you jail right. with your sister. Uh, that's right. Old timey jail. Old timey jail saying. game. Uh, no, I do remember my, it's funny. What? You have some, do you have the coffee, the, the metal coffee mug that you would slide across the slats? <laughs> Bring me more gruel. That's Schallettstein. Oh, it's um, <laughs> sounds a lot like Schallettstein. Uh, no, I do. I have some memories. He of- was my cantor. I remember that. Gene Schallettstein, <laughs> Temple Beth Israel. Uh, oh my God. Uh, I did. No, I do. I have some memories of being very, very small, being in a, a, wow. a, a crib. I remember. I have one very vivid memory about like my, and I know it was. I know I was very young because my my parents were still married and they divorced when I was about two. So mm. the fact that I can remember them in the house together, living together, that's, you know, that's tells me that it had to be the first couple of years of life. And I do remember like them going to a party or something and like it must have been my first babysitting experience with somebody that wasn't like a grandparent or something. And it was like these two, <laughs> it was these two, like, you know, I, I, maybe they could have been anywhere from 15 to 30 or what the fuck would I know? I was a baby, but they reminded me of, <clears throat> they reminded me of Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers from all in the family. And I remember all in the what? family being on TV and being like, those two people are here in the house. Cause the guy looked like Rob <laughs> Reiner. And the, you know, I, I don't know if it was that the girl was hired to, or it was a friend of the family who came to stay. And then their boyfriend was, over I think she was her. hired. I think she was hired. And then, and then the boyfriend came over, but uh, I was oh, like I was going a different direction. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> wait, so, so you, like, why is meathead here? But I do remember being in my crib crying because I wanted, wanted my mommy, wanted her to come back from they the They hired party. a Sally Struthers lookalike? Yes, clearly. It's, 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 it must account for some of my obsession with that show. Why I felt the, the burning need at 20 years old to play Carol O'Connor in a stage version of All the All the babysitters they knew were tied up, so they're like, we don't know what to do. Should we, we can't go to the babysitting agency. There's a celebrity impersonation agency. Perfect. I see this Hire ad in Newsday. All right, let's call them up. Newsday. It's either Jimmy Carter or Sally Struthers. Let's we'll go with the Sally Struthers celebrity impersonator. She's, She's more, more maternal. He doesn't need that malaise at this young age. 
Keith Carter away from him. But this is your memory of being in the crib, though, is a traumatic, like the babysitters, Meathead and and (laughs) locked me in the crib. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, I remember being in in the den with them and like watching TV and not wanting my mom to go. And then I do remember like crying in the crib. Oh, Jason, that's why you remember your crib, because it was a horrible, it's a horrible experience. Yeah. It's incredible that you remember that. I can't think of anything from this time. No. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's rid- it's a ridiculous question to ask, but we ask it every episode, <laughs> so it's like, okay, what do you what you got? What was going on at this time though? What was what? happening at this time that would have affected us later in life? Gerald Ford, mm. right? Wasn't this when Gerald Ford wasn't this Did right when t- Gerald Ford yeah, must have been. Yep, took yep, over? Yep. And at the very end, the last vestiges of last, Vietnam yeah, and yeah. all of that stuff. Like, yeah, Vietnam happened? just ended. Okay, yeah, so. Exactly. But Ford exactly. took over. And I remember, that I do remember as a baby. I remember going, <laughs> Gerald Ford, he's fall down. He's a funny, clumsy man. I don't remember saying any words or knowing what Gerald he Ford He hits was. corners too. He's just like me. Ow. Ow. <laughs> Kindred spirit. <laughs> Do you remember your first movie? The first movie that you can remember going to as a yes. very little kid? Muppet movie. Really? Muppet oh, wow. movie and Popeye were two. Yeah. yeah two. Those are the, we've talked about this because I feel like those weren't the first movies that I went to. I, I, I don't think so, but I do remember. Fred went to Behind the Green Door. And, yeah, uh, a lot. I went behind there a lot. <laughs> Wait, what year did Muppet he Movie? He actually went behind it. He had a green door. He went way back. Went, what would you say? What year did Muppet True. Movie and Popeye come out? I Muppet Movie was seventy nine and Popeye no. was eighty. Oh, so no. So Makes I, sense. I mean, because Star Wars was before that. Because I remember Wars, seeing Star Wars in the movie Superman. theaters. I remember seeing Cinderella in a drive-in, like some re-release, and then and I was like really tiny because I was on probably my mom or somebody's lap in the passenger seat. Like, and I felt like I was, I mean, that's, again, it feels like it was from the crib era. It feels like I was like really (laughs) tiny. They brought the crib to the drive-in. No, no, no. Just that I was that age. I was that small. That's what I seem to remember. I seem to remember the first one being an an old animated Disney and it might've been Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I could be completely making that up, but I seem to feel like that was the first yeah. one that I have a very, oh. very distant memory. I tried memory. looking it up once to be like, like, when was like Cinderella in re-release, you know, so I could try to track like exactly what year it must have been. And I don't know if I ever figured that out or if it's like in a drive-in too, it's like, right. you know, the, the second feature or whatever is always, isn't necessarily something on release. It's like just a, another movie that gets attached. So I, I, I don't know if I could figure they it would out. Do that re-release Disney would re-release oh, yeah. some yeah. of the animated. So that's why I, I, I do have a memory of seeing like probably Bambi or something like that. Mm-hmm. Would they have huh. re-released Bambi? Oh, yeah. Do you think? Absolutely. Oh, I have a great story. Cause I remember going, uh, when they did that, I remember seeing Bambi, when I was, I guess I must have been two or three, and then I remember, like some of the other, I'd go to like a like a like a play date at some of my neighbors' homes in the cribs, and they'd be like, "Do you see Bambi?" And I would be like, "Yeah, best part, Bambi, mom, she pop her boob, her boob go oh, no. pop." And they and they believed me because I was sort of known as like the movie baby at that time. Even then, even then, you were the movie baby. I was, even then, I was lying about movies. <laughs> Bambi's mother was shot in the breast, so perhaps she did. In a sense, she popped a booby. 
in the sense of booby went pop. And then she lied down forever. For first time listeners, uh, I used to lie about seeing movies a lot. Go back right. to episode four. Four. I think that would be the one. Right from okay. the start. Right from the start. Oh my God. We oh get into my, my web of lies and deceit. <laughs> what um, are what are the what are and what was your what would your first one have been? What, Jason would it have been I think Star Cinder- Wars? Cinderella. Oh, I think Cinderella's oh, okay. the first one I can remember, and then probably like a like Herbie goes yes, bananas yes, or something oh, like that. Yeah. No yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I saw a couple of movies before Star Star Wars wasn't the first thing. Star Wars was the first time where I was bombarded by a sound system. Maybe it was the first Dolby stereo where I was like, holy shit. I remember mm. being like, I can't. The sound felt like it was coming from all around me. And that like the I still I have a vivid memory of that, of like the laser sound effects and stuff being uh so so real and kind of scaring me and like totally enveloping me. I do remember yeah. that. But yeah. and nothing before that's the first memory I have of something that was that immersive feeling, but I definitely went to movies before it. What what would have been sort of the general I mean if if Going to the movies in the 70s was a very different kind of experience because it was like, you know, I I feel (laughs) were movie theaters cleaner then or now? I feel like they were a little more like a dingier, I think. Oh, yeah. I remember like like cigarette hole burns in all the seats, you know what I mean? Because people would and they'd put them out on the- Yeah, people would smoke in movie theaters back then. I remember it being mustier and uh, stickier. Yeah, that's yeah, mustier and stickier and everything was brown and you kind of and and your town probably had an independently owned. We did it. The Island Theater uh, was an independently owned sort of right downtown. But we never we never really went to it because yeah. it was so dingy, you know, and it was so like, oh, <laughs> yeah. this is kind of a gross experience and then they made it like a historic building because you know it got bought and people were like well let's tear this down and put something else up and the town was like no no this is the island theater and mm. now it's a bunch of stores and stuff but mm. but um you know we, we had would two go movie to, theaters in our town i remember and were they like independent or were they like general cinemas you know kind of a thing i feel like one was independent i remember one was on Plandome road and i feel like that was oh. an independent one i remember that's where i saw et years mm. later uh-huh. and then there was another one in the americana shopping mall which was an outdoor mall and that might have been like a bigger chain. I can't remember, but they still both felt, you know, they were small theaters and there was something yeah. slightly dingy about them from what I remember. You know, it was mm-hmm. just everything, it was it was darker and yeah and and, and the, the sticky they were trying to hide back. the muck i think they kept the lights mm-hmm. low because they were trying yeah. to hide all the oh yeah all the gunk you know right. what i mean they showed um, behind the green door a lot that was strange but may that explains the stickiness too i suppose it's <laughs> a different kind of theater fred yeah you were, you were in the wrong theater yeah it was very different there was there's one out by you jason out in kew gardens that is uh yeah. wonderful and then there's another one. Uh, there's a bunch of them in Queens. You, you st- can still find them sort of dotted throughout Queens. You know, the, the little independently owned. And they haven't been taken over by, you know, by Lowe's well, the, or any of the big companies. The, the Cinemart yeah. right on. Oh, Cinemart, on, of is, course. Is, is, it's very, it's been highly renovated. Like it's these super comfortable, big reclining seats now. And oh, Cinemart, wow. we're like shit a fart. 
Because <laughs> this theater stinks. I see what you did there, Shadow. <laughs> but, so. but it is right down the street from us, and it's uh, yeah, and it was, and it's been like named a historical landmark. There was mm-hmm. a there was something up during the pandemic saying uh, thank you, Senator Schumer, for blah 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 blah. I think they got it landmark status during the wow. pandemic and stuff. But they're they're right across the street from Eddie's Sweet Shop, so oh, you know boy, Eddie's is a hundred something years old and. <clears throat> You know, Cinemart, I don't know how long that's been around, but it's got to be, you know, decades and decades. Um, so and from the outside, it looks and even the lobby, it looks like uh, older school. And then now the theaters so. are all yeah. are all renovated. So I'm going to go see Spider-Man there next week. I got a ticket to see Spider-Man. And so. this is not your first movie back. It is not your first movie in a theater. Back. You saw no. I feel like you saw Cruella, you said. I saw Cruella. I saw that was good. Black Widow. And Fred, you've seen In the Heights and what else? Yeah, I've seen a bunch of stuff. This is a fascinating conversation for our listeners, by the way. I was just thinking. I love this conversation. Are you kidding? This is nostalgia. <laughs> Look, if I don't like it, I'll edit it out. And if I like it, it'll stay. And we'll play 32 clips of Cruella starting now. Let me give you some advice. You can't care about anyone else. Everyone else is an obstacle. You care what an obstacle wants or feels you're dead. If I'd cared about anyone or thing, I might have died. You have the talent. Whether you have the killer instinct is the big question. Yeah, I think Fred's just mad because he's like, I don't know the Forest Hills movie theater. And he's like kicking (laughs) stuff. And he's he's like, Nobody wants to talk about the Eagle's Nest. Such hasn't come up once. Can't talk about the Eagle's Nest. This is 1974. I know that's true. That's true. <laughs> the, the groove was not fully put into the earth yet. Or no, was it? yet. No, it was being, being built. I think my babysitters put that groove oh. in, and then, and then they came out to East Northport. Oh. Hey, it was yeah. just a little divot until Jason's babysitters got a hold of it. Lil Divin. Sundays on Fox. <laughs> Listen, getting back to the movie theaters of the 70s. Yeah, 70s. That's right. You're right. You're right. That's uh, that's all today. We're good. We're in the 70s, baby. 70s. Disco? 70s. Well, let's let's say <laughs> Disco Inferno. <gasps> and and could we safely say that the the movie theaters of the 70s were pretty much a disaster? Oh. As compared to those of today. Towering Inferno. OJ is coming. Burn, baby, burn. For three seconds, I was like surprised. I like, I wanted to see him. Yeah, I was like, we're, you know, get an axe, start swinging it around. That's your thing. I want to open this door, but the handle's hot. Someone give me a glove. Ooh, this one fits. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, what? No? You son of a bitch. Oh, my God in heaven. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That was very good, Fred. Very, very good. good. There, I was about to say something, and I'm like, no, that's not going to compare <laughs> to what you did leading us into the towering inferno. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman race against time as one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. The towering inferno. It's out of control. It's coming your way. Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox present Irwin Allen's production of The Towering Inferno. 
This classic 1970s disaster movie about a fire that breaks out in a state-of-the-art San Francisco high-rise building is chock-full of A-list guest stars, including Fred Astaire and O.J. Simpson. And overworked... Wait a second. That's that's not A-list guest. Why did I say that? Fred Astaire is. O.J. Simpson is not an A-list guest (laughs) star. What am I saying? All right. Rewind. This classic 1970s disaster movie about a fire that breaks out in a state-of-the-art San Francisco high-rise building is chock-full of people, including Fred Astaire, noted person, and O.J. Simpson, used to be a person, an overworked fire chief, played by Steve McQueen, and the building's architect, played by Paul Newman, must cooperate in the struggle to save lives and subdue panic while a corrupt, cost-cutting contractor, played by Richard Chamberlain, tries to evade responsibility for his role in the disaster. The Towering Inferno made $14 million over its opening weekend and $116 million worldwide. A pretty good haul for 1974. Fred and Dan... What'd you guys think of the towering inferno? I had never seen it before. Wow. I was thinking of the disaster movies that I had seen of that era. And the only one that I can remember was the Poseidon adventure. And then of course the wonderful meteor, which we watched a couple episodes ago, but I had never seen this movie. It always like as a kid, I remember the idea of it scared me. The poster Mm -hmm. was scary and like, it just sounded scary. You know, the towering inferno. As, mm-hmm. oh, can you say it again in that voice, Jason? The towering inferno. That's scary, <laughs> right? That's scary. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, watching it. I yeah. really liked it. I thought, for some, I don't know why I expected it to be really campy and mm-hmm. sort of silly and over the top. And I was in, like, all the way through. I, I, I really, I thought it was a good is it a perfect movie? No, but I thought it was a pretty good, solid disaster flick. I was like, oh, okay, this is what Roland Emmerich, you know, we talked about this with yeah. Independence Day and like what they do with all that. And I'm like, this is what, that's what they're doing. You know, yes. it, it all starts here. You know, they're just sort of building on that. Uh, I, you know, it was a really solid cast, I thought. You know, Newman yeah, and yeah. Steve McQueen were were great. Uh, <laughs> Richard Chamberlain was fun. Uh, yeah, he was good. It was, um, William I was, Holden, I was, right? That's William Holden. William Holden. Is yeah, the, yeah, the great, William yeah. Holden, great William Holden. Yeah. Which was interesting. I was reading somewhere that it was the first time or one of the first times where, what is it, it was called, it was a different type of billing. There were all these arguments about I guess who's going to get the top billing? Yeah, Yeah, it was called um, uh, Staggered But Equal Billing. It was the (laughs) first time that was used in a movie because it was a battle between Steve McQueen and Paul Newman and then William Holden was also like, what about me? And they're like, well, I don't know, you sort of passed your prime, but they thought, so they did the staggered billing. And Faye Goddamn Dunaway. Dunaway. How about Faye Dunaway? Dunaway. Major star of this era, Oscar-winning star of network and And everything. At her least crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) <laughs> but I really liked it. I I I, I thought uh, I love Steve McQueen in it. I, yeah, you know, it was interesting because great. watching it, and they start off the movie starts off with the dedication to the firefighters right off the bat. Yes. And I thought, and for me, I thought, wow, they're really paying attention to the details with them, and they're really showing. You know, I loved how Steve McQueen was like, you know, let's go to work. Let's just go to work, and he was complaining yeah. about the the weight of the the tanks, but he's like, but you know what? That's just what it is. Let's do it. And there was like a beleaguered uh, aspect to him, but also just like, this is what we do. I really 
like those scenes. Those are my favorites of McQueen, oh, just yeah. sort of, you know, sort of dusting off his hands and saying, all right, this is what we got to do. And, and I, I, you know, I don't know much of Steve McQueen's work. I mean, Papillon and, uh, Bullet. I, Bullet, yeah, you know. But I, yeah, I don't know him well. I don't know his, and, uh, yeah, his work. I liked him a lot in this. I'm, I, and mm-hmm. I have seen it. I saw it a lot when I was a kid. We Me had too. The, I saw it a oh, bunch of times. It was on TV a lot. Yeah, I've it seen it It was on TV, lot. but then we also had that video disc thing that I've talked about. Oh, like we had that movie on video disc. My mom liked it. We got <laughs> it, was a, it was one of those two disc ones because it's such a long movie. I mean, it's a fucking long movie. It's two hours and 45 minutes. It's very long. long. I don't remember it having been that long and I started it and I went what this yeah. is nearly three hours I, I was very surprised but everything it was even it longer is- for me just and if anyone's listening because I know <laughs> oh you know sometimes people listen and they want to they want to watch the movies this very movie's hard. tough to get so I found it uh, I did a look up and I found it on some website called Daily Motion or something and it just shows a lot of commercials and one of them was a commercial for roti that just played <laughs> over and over and over and over and over now, again what so is for roti? me it was like Roti? Yeah, what is it? You, you're you're trying to push me to do the bad accent. I'm no, but I really it. don't know what it is. Like you kept doing the bad accent. It was very offensive. Everyone, he did it privately for us. He won't do it here because you know he's got a career and children, and it's cancel time. So he won't do it now. But he does it very well. If you ever want, if you ever meet him and just want him to do, be like, what's that Roti voice? But I honestly don't. When you were tell, telling us about it, I was like. Is it food? Just play the clip of me uh, dubbed in Hindi, and that'll give you an idea. <laughs> it's showtime, <laughs> Roti. It's it's like a bread. It's like a it's like a pastry puff, an Indian See, uh, pastry puff. See, I didn't know that. Yeah, you're and every more, two you're minutes, more enlightened. As, than sorry, I am. yeah, every two minutes of watching this, that commercial would pop up. So for me, it was like a four and a half hour affair. <laughs> yeah, like this episode. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing about you know it is. What I noticed this time, and and Dan, I want to hear what you think about the movie. But I, but as somebody who's seen it a lot, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I didn't remember a lot of it. Like I, I, I remember the feel of it. There were certain scenes, there were certain moments, certain characters that that stood out in my mind. But the size of it, the length of it, I, it felt a little bloated to to me. I mean, it's like it's a it's a. I feel like it's longer than it needs to be, but it is very much like yeah. if Peter Jackson made it, we're going to talk about him next week. But I mean, you know, somebody who's like attracted to the scope and the size and, and wants to really let it play out to the, to the bitter end. And I think that's an, that's in the nature of everything about the production. When you see the credits two studio, it was the first time as a kid, I remember being like, ah, two studios produced this. It essentially has two directors. Yes. That's because, what I wanted to bring right? up. Erwin Allen directed the action sequences. The action and I'm sequences. going, okay, so John Guillermin, director of Sheena. But we've been in great hotels. Sheena, this month on HBO. What did right. he do? What the hell? He directed, he directed the dialogue scenes and I like guess. the love scenes and stuff like that? I, I guess so. But they had two Crazy. directors, two studios. It's based on two completely different, different books, books by yeah. different authors. And, you know, and then two megastars to the point where they had to stagger, like you say, Fred, <laughs> stagger the credit because they were, everything was like, you know, it's in a weird way. It almost feels like the perfect synergy would be about, you know, because they, the, the Twin Towers had just been built. I think uh, right. construction had just been completed in, right. in New York City. And I, I can't oh help God. but think that this is 
comment on that or on the because it is it's about these super skyscrapers that were starting to pop up around you know the the world and uh, i was almost surprised that it wasn't about two <laughs> towers would have been a little on the nose obviously yeah. but it does yeah. feel like the everything about the production is doubling up doubling up doubling up so but no i sort question. of like that it took it you're right i mean it was it was hard for me to get the full scope of that because again i was watching it with the commercials kept breaking it up <laughs> and what were the commercials it, for i didn't catch what they were for it's showtime i liked how they sort of let it unfold and take its time there was i i just thought that was and, and maybe that's what um made it more plausible to me at times. And there was never, I just found nothing. It's it, everything seemed very plausible. And in terms of like how they were dealing with it, you know, because that, it was sort yes. of taking a long time. Cause originally I was like, why is it, William Holden doesn't give a shit that there's a fire in his building in the beginning? He seemed, he seemed pretty lax about it. Well, he's but, the Jaws mayor, right? And he's oh, essentially well, the mayor course. of Jaws yeah. and they're saying nothing to worry about. We need to have a party. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I guess that was the thing that like, okay, it's, it's all the way down here and it's going to, you know, they'll, they'll handle it. There's no way it's going to get up here that quick. And again, I, I, it was refreshing to me that, it sort of they they took their time with it, and you sort you met you know all the different characters, so you you got to live you know uh, they they felt lived in a bit, and there was nothing. There's never like the anything. Love boat. It was like an episode of the Love Boat. It was, it was very like, much <laughs> like the Love Boat. Yeah, well, in that you way, get that, you get that sense from some of the other disaster movies of the era. Certainly, Poseidon Adventure, which is another yes. Irwin Allen. Yeah. Certainly, the airport movies where it's like you spend the whole first you know half hour, 45 minutes, like just get to know these people and mm -hmm. then let's put them all on a plane. It's a very tried and true. It's a pretty tried and true. I mean, stagecoach works the same way. Lifeboat, old, the old Hitchcock mm. movie. Like they all work in this same kind of way. Titanic, Titanic, Titanic works that way. Right. Because otherwise you don't care. You need to care exactly. about these people. So, right. but I, I liked that there was, no, there was never anything like overly heroic or sort of James Bondish and how mm -hmm. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman dealt with stuff. You know, it's just real people and, I, you know, there were times I was surprised at some of, like, you know, the, the deaths that happened. I mean, I, I was yeah. definitely, oh, oh, my God. You know, there were a few times when I was really like, wow, that was, ooh, that was brutal. That was brutal. Oh, it's, un, it's an un, unbelievably brutal. And the one that's the most brutal to me, and, and this is the one storyline that I think you really could cut out of the movie in its entirety mm -hmm. is the Robert Wagner and his, <laughs> and his, and his secretary storyline. Yeah. You don't need that. I don't understand really honestly who he is in the story. Like He's what is the most handsome function? man in the world? That's what I kept thinking. He's I'm like, incredibly handsome. <laughs> Robert Wagner is just like, he's almost like a stereo. They're like, he's like, we need <laughs> to make the most handsome, perfect man in the world. You've got like five got of the five most of handsome men in the yeah. world. I know, but he, there's just something about him that's like, yeah. he's like molded, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, it's like a caricature. It's, it's silly. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah. I think I, so much of this movie is by design because it's like, all right, let's take Robert Wagner, incredibly handsome, Richard Chamberlain, incredibly handsome, Paul Newman, all these incredibly handsome people. And then you, and we'll give them all a backstory. <laughs> we'll give them all something to care about, like you said. And then you get Steve McQueen, grizzled, sort of hardened, hard edged, craggy coming in in the middle of it. You don't know anything about his backstory. Where's his wife and kids? Where his, where's his love story? Where's his, where, and that's by design. I think it's brilliant. 
I he's think just so too. the fireman and he's just the hero and he's just coming in. You don't hit him. Yeah. You don't get scenes of him at the breakfast table before coming in. You know, he yeah. just shows up and he's just yeah. doing the thing that defines him. That thing that is his job fighting fires and saving lives. And I think that's a br- brilliant thing. They have the great line where he goes, uh, who pays to see us play? Exactly. Mm. They're talking that's about exactly the football right. players and they're yeah. like, no. And then, and then, and then, the, then the, literally the next line after that is right. McQueen going, let's go to work. Architects. Yeah, it's all our fault. Now, you know, there's no sure way for us to fight a fire or anything over the seventh floor, but you guys just keep building them as high as you can. Hey, are you here to take me on or the fire? For what it's worth, Architect, this is one building that I figured wouldn't burn. Neither did I. The, the, the death I wanted to highlight was the Robert Wagner death. That <laughs> is, I remember that from seeing it as a kid. He turns to her. It's kind of funny. He puts a <laughs> wet towel on his head. He turns to her and right. says, I'll be back with the whole fire department. And then instantaneously <laughs> is engulfed, engulfed in flames it's as like he's running gun. around. Yeah. Yes, it's very naked gunish. I was like, you have to be kidding me. And then a few seconds later, she, she has to. Oh, oh God, that was hard. The, 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 the women get it rough here, right? They I mean, really, how many women do we see like fall all the way down oh from the side of the skyscraper? God. It's, well, it's very, difficult. you know. You get you the 9 11 stuff. You get all the 9 11 stuff throughout yeah. this. Yeah. The whole movie evokes that and what's Ugh. interesting and i've never seen a movie kind of put it this way it's great when steve mcqueen says to paul newman you just keep building them higher and higher don't you even though you yeah. you know we can't effectively really save anybody over the seventh floor of a building if there's a fire yeah. firefighters can't really help anybody above the seventh floor at least that's what he says yep. in this film at this time you know yeah and i was how like, can oh you my not God. think of 9 11 when he says that it's unbelievable yeah and then it's like, all right, but we're going to go up. We got to do it. You know, it's just that's our job. It's that image that everybody talks about from 9-11. The firefighters going up the stairs as we're scrambling to get down. How long before you can give me a complete list of your tenants? Oh, you don't have to worry about that. We're moving them out right now. Not living business tenants. Well, we kind of looked up there, too. The majority of them haven't moved in yet. And those that have aren't working at night. I want to know who they are, not where they are. Now, what does that got to do with anything? Who they are? Do you have any wool or silk manufacturers? You see in a fire, wool and silk give off cyanide gas. Do you have any uh, sporting good manufacturers like table tennis balls? They give off toxic gases. Now, do you want me to keep going down the line? No. One list of tenants coming right up. Thank you. In the, this is, you know, this is utterly ridiculous department, the room with the oily rags yes. and the by yes. the giant tins, the giant tubs of corrosive flammable stuff right is next the to room the- where the fire yeah. starts. It's the most ridiculous thing in the movie. When I saw that, I was like, are you kidding me? There's like spray, spray paint cans and rags. Yes. This is the room where we keep everything combustible. Right next to an electrical bo- Yeah, you yeah. Be How the fire kidding. started, I was a little surprised. I was like, oh, that that's how it begins. That's this is where we're going. But you know, that being said, with the fire, I, I will say this: the other thing that impressed me, the special effects were pretty damn impressive. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah. A movie again. I don't know. I guess I was expecting something more schlocky 
because in my head, that's what these movies were. And they're really not. Yeah. I mean, even the Poseidon Adventure, the effects are very good in that. I mean, in I all the stuff. So I, I don't know why that was in my head, I guess, because there just have been many schlocky disaster movies of that era. But sure. this was not one of them. And like, I mean, that obviously that building does not exist in real life. You know, there was yeah. never a moment. I mean, maybe you could sort of tell the the green screen effects when they were lowering the elevator um, or, or when they were on the. Um, I really could. It was good. You know, on, on, on the good. on the seat that to bring to the other building. But but that was amazing. So that I remember. That was for, an amazing sequence. I mean, you in know. many ways, I got to say I, the special effects in this were in some ways slightly better than in Superman in terms of like the stuff, you know, in the mm. air. I mean, it's a different thing. Superman's a different yeah, thing. You're showing a man flying. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I thought it wild when uh, when Richard Chamberlain does get on. The, uh, the chair and he starts to say, can you read my mind? <laughs> <laughs> they say, get off! And they just knock him off and he falls. <laughs> no, I thought the, the effects are really good. Well, this is a big, big budget movie. You know, well, it's you like have two studios, aren't... like you said, yeah. So that's a lot of money yeah. to put into it. But the money, it's the bloat, money. There. It's bloat like crazy. You yeah. know, uh, and, and like, it's so funny that you say the doubling up. You have two major, you know, stars of the day headlining it. You basically get two characters um, uh, the the William Holden character and the Richard Chamberlain character. You probably don't need yeah. both. You probably only need one or the other. The guy who cut corners, right? Well, you yeah. get two of those. You know, yeah. You, you like get, even you, when I did the little description, I was like, you could put William Holden's name here, but he's the one who has a little bit of a change of heart and a conscience and yes. tries to do the right thing in the end. And yeah. Richard Chamberlain's the son of a bitch, so I just Gets drunk. <laughs> said, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. pretty great though too. Yeah. That sequence, you know, he's just it like, is. This is all just give me the alcohol and just soak my. Brain. I don't like the way you talk to me. You drunk? Not yet. Well, then get out of my way. You didn't talk like this two years ago, did you? Running over budget and out of money? Did you ask me then how I could shave $2 million off our electrical costs? Shut up and help me with these people. And let me ask you, my dear father. Excuse me. Am I the only subcontractor you encouraged to cut corners? Excuse me? Where did you save the other $4 million in Doug's original budget? So weird to see William Holden and Faye Dunaway, you know, having, you know, loved network, uh, you know, uh, so much and having that be such an iconic relationship between them to see them almost in this very other, you know, they barely yeah. have anything together, but it's a very different, you know, you almost want them to, to, to reprise, you know, to at least acknowledge and reprise that sort of. Well, incredible- that's two years later, though. Network is two years after this. Oh, what does that got to do with anything? Network is after this? Network was in 1976. Yeah. Oh, what does that got to do with anything? So that's oh it. They hadn't even done that yet. Yeah, yeah. Because Holden looks so much older in I this. Know. I know. Isn't that funny? Yeah, you're right. He oh, does. That, he looks like a grandpa in this. Yeah, that's I, crazy. I absolutely thought Network would have been like 72 or something no, like that. It was, it, no, 76, wow. same year as uh, wow, Rocky. Wow, wow, Yeah. And how about the the overturned cement wheelbarrow on the? T- it's like that's also like no, wait a minute. Think about like the wait most random thing. Like we gotta we gotta really show that this door is stuck. The Let's just pour door. some cement in front of it. <laughs> Fire door has an overturned wheelbarrow of hardened cement <laughs> on the other side what? of it. But I didn't that, even notice that. Did, yes, that was the that's how they, they set up the, the whole C four thing. That's how they set up the solution. They're like, yeah, oh, I thought we it got, was we, just debris fell. No, no, it's, like, no. it's a, a little. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody had a had a wheelbarrow of cement on the other side of the fire door. <laughs> Somehow it got overturned, no, and they went really, and they ran away. Basically, they were like. 
well, not my fault. And they ran down those stairs. That's and a then a little it got Brady old. Bunch kid gets up there with. Yeah, uh, Mike with, look at uh, land. Uh, Bobby with, um, Brady goes up there and is like, we can't get through here. Oh, I thought it, I didn't. I missed the wheelbarrow. I just figured like the ceiling fell and that was just debris in front. OK, that's, no. yeah, that's ridiculous. Exploded. That's why the, that's where the C4 explosive gets brought into the plot. Right. And you go, no, ah, I know that. But, you know, huh. yeah, um, it wasn't anything they could move or get around. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't realize there's a wheelbarrow. I have been in this business 52 years and I will, I've never seen anything like this. Oh, what does that got to do with anything? You know, when you think of Fred Astaire, you think of dancing and you go, oh, they'll, maybe they'll find an excuse for Fred Astaire to dance in the movie. And they do. And what's lovely is he does a very sort of, you know, barely a shuffle kind of like, ah, no, I'm not really a dancer. And you kind of go, <laughs> yeah. oh, Fred Astaire. That's a what a lovely thing to do is basically do an anti-dance. You're Fred goddamn Astaire, you know, right. and somebody, John Gearmean or Jerwin Allen or somebody said, yeah, just do like a little, just do the bare, barest minimum of like an old man dancing and what that might look like. And then sort of uh, slough it off and, ha- and comment on it. It was It great. was the same thing with OJ. They I wanted to get a murder scene in. <laughs> you fucker. Like, no, let's not do it. So he was about like, at one point he sort of got angry. You saw like he, his, his temper rose a little bit and you're like, oh, he's going to do it. And then he goes, no. And he sort of winks at the camera. You son of a bitch. You snuck in there. I was like, I was like, they were like, OJ, come on stab somebody. And he's like, all right. But he like has the knife, but he keeps dropping it. And it's like, come on, just pick it up and do it already. And he's like, oh no, this knife's too slippery. Just keep dropping it. I was surprised that he referred to the cat as AC. Oh, what does that got to do with anything? I wasn't I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. That's a deep cut. Which is what? <laughs> oh, sorry. How many towering Sheilas? How many towering Sheilas? You guys are were, were keener on it. I'm gonna give it an eight. Wow. I enjoyed yeah, it. That's where I am with yeah. you, Fred. I mean, it's it, it is shocky. There are ridiculous things, but I'm, I'm at an eight with it. I, I I I enjoyed the rewatch, and I was like you, Jason. I was so surprised by how much I remembered of it because it was. I feel like this is one of those movies that was just on regular TV a lot. If they needed something to fill four hours on a Sunday afternoon, the Dowering Inferno, they throw <laughs> well, yeah. it on with commercials. It's yeah. like it is it, as Fred knows from all the roti. Um, it's a. Uh, <laughs> It's it is an epic. It's it's not just epic in every other sense of the word. It's it's an epic watch. It's it's like yeah, sit, settle in. Um, I was like, I had like six question mark, six point five question mark, seven question mark. I, I I'll go. I have fond memories of it, but this time I it did feel a little drunk. I'm I'll go. I'll go seven. That feels a touch high, but your goodwill towards it. Uh, is is gonna yeah is gonna push me that in, in that direction because that it, it is it, it is actually pretty great in lots of ways so yes seven seven for the towering inferno I can't believe it should I go six point five no seven <laughs> so go six point five go do pull it down and go six point seven five yes. two four I don't need the two four six point seven what? five I'll go okay. you know you got O J Simpson and some oily rags that's it's hard to get above. <laughs> Well, Naked Gun is higher than that. So, all right. Yes. No. OJ doesn't completely keep a movie below a seven. Um. I like the uh, the German translated version, the the, the towering Schwanzenstupper. Ah, oh. uh, yes. Did you guys see that one? Yes. I felt it. Uh. <laughs> 
Oh, the mysteries of life. Last I found. (laughs) It's young Frankenstein. It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. Life, you hear me? Give my creation life. Sky means business. Starring Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. Don't miss Young Frankenstein. Personally directed by Mel Blazing Saddles Brooks. In black and white. No offense. Respected young medical lecturer, Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, played by Gene Wilder, learns that he has inherited his infamous grandfather's estate in Transylvania. Arriving at the castle, Dr. Frankenstein soon begins to recreate his grandfather's experiments with the help of servants Igor, played by Marty Feldman, Inga, played by Terry Garr, and the fearsome Frau Blucher, played by Cloris Leachman. After he creates his own monster, played by Peter Boyle, new complications ensue with the arrival of the good doctor's fiancée, Elizabeth, played by Madeline Kahn. Young Frankenstein made $2.8 million over its opening weekend, with a worldwide take of $86.3 million, and fills out the Gene Wilder's Mel Brooks triptych that began in 1968 with the producers and continued the same year with Blazing Saddles. Can you believe it? Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, same goddamn year. These guys are amazing. Fred and Dan, what'd you boys think? Of young Frankenstein. I mean, so, what can you say? I mean, it's such a delight. It's so funny. It is a. It is a a an absolute. Um, it's a bit machine that works. You know, it's a bit machine that yeah. you care about. Like, but like Blazing Saddles. Like, um, you know, the more successful Mel Brooks movies. It, it's it, it's a setup and a bum bum and a setup and a bum bum and and it just works over and over and over again. These guys are are masters of it and at their and at the height of their powers, at the height of their. And, and it's also a loving tribute to James Whale and to the original Frankenstein movies and all of the and all of the great universal mm. monster movies. It's, it's a loving and very careful and very thoughtful tribute to those movies at the same time as it's a it's a, a bit machine that's rolling down the highway. I don't know even know where to begin with the performances. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I want to begin with Kenneth Mars. Because I had forgotten. <laughs> I knew you were going to go to him. Yeah. As I'm watching, amazing. I'm like, oh, Dan is going to go right to Kenneth Mars. God. He's so uh, goddamn good. Crying, tears streaming down my face. Funny. <laughs> with just his mad, he's mad. It's madness. His choices. Uh, I remember my my buddy, Mike uh, Gellis and I, um, uh, who, who was my roommate at Hofstra, we would do that fine. And it didn't, I had totally forgotten about this until he did it in the movie when he goes, we go to my house for some wine and sponge cake. And then his arm comes <laughs> off and he goes, shirt. <laughs> <laughs> we used to say that to each other all the time. We go shirt. And that became a whole character that we would do. Uh-huh. You know, we would like call the campus pizza and be like, I would like one zero, please. You know, we would do the Kenneth Mars. It was nuts. It was nuts. I just loved every time he was on screen. I want a whole movie about that character. But I, I don't know. It, it just it just keeps getting better as it goes. That's a hard thing for a comedy to do. 
to keep getting funnier and better and and upping the ante and and going there again and again and again. Um, I love uh, um, the moment where uh, 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 Marty Feldman, <laughs> you know, where, where Madeline Kahn, Hofstra, Madeline Kahn shows up. And Marty Feldman says, you take the one with the turban and bites her, just yes. starts biting her. her <laughs> That's her, Marty Feldman's uh, best moment in the entire movie. Oh that, that scene, that it's shot so of good. all of them just lined up and him yeah. just finally letting loose. And I'm like, that's the best. Because out of all of them, Marty Feldman is the most like sticky over the top, yeah. you know, no winky wink yeah. to the camera. Yeah, he's doing and those are big, big yeah. winks with those yeah. eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, out of all the stuff he does, that scene to me is my favorite of his. Uh, Igor, would you give me a hand with the bags? Certainly. You take the blonde and I'll take the one in the Tyvan. <laughs> Stop that. I'm talking about the luggage. Yes, master. Ladies, this way. It's going to be a long night. If you need any help with the girls, please don't hesitate. <laughs> Good job. Oh God, it's so great to watch Gene Wilder. Yeah, this was on my. Was it on yours too, Fred? This was. A, oh yeah. His was like yeah. number four, I think, on my list of all. Great, I feel like I had him uh, and Cloris Leachman. Yes, you this. did. You had like a. And you I had Gene you Wilder have, in the producers also, Fred, on your list of great performances. Oh yes, you but, did. I mean, you did. I had I had Wilder in. Uh, Fred uh, looks bewildered right in now. This as number. I didn't four. have him as in Young Frankenstein. That seems no, crazy you didn't. I had him as young in Young Frankenstein. I don't think you did because I think you chose producers. But you had you did have Cloris Leachman in in this. I know you did. Oh, what does that got to do with anything? Mel Brooks is at his best when he has the leavening influence of Gene Wilder. Gene exactly. Wilder and Mel Brooks together are yeah. such a magical combination. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, and I, I, I like to think it's you know Gene Wilder has this soothing, calming, and elevating effect on Mel Brooks. But it but it goes yeah. both ways because Gene Wilder is really never as as great as he is. Uh, you're right. When he's, with, you know, even mm-hmm. in his best co- collaborations with Richard Pryor or whatever, I can't think of anything. Uh, I love Gene Wilder all the time, but I, I can't think of anything that's as good as these three movies that he does yeah. with Mel Brooks. Wrong, sir. Wrong. You lose. Good day, sir. If you had to pick a Gene Wilder performance I to think put so. on the top, absolutely, I, I don't think you get better yeah. than this. Producers, yeah. what he, I think maybe what I uh, with my list, that scene, that opening scene with him and Zero Mostel makes me laugh hysterically, mm-hmm. you know, from start to finish. But this is just from top to bottom his, I think his best performance. It's what? the most interesting. It's the most fun. It's, it's just manic all the way through. Well, I forgot this how funny him. those early scenes are in when he's being the professor. I think oh, that's yeah. my favorite. I said that before. The, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is so the very funny. beginning between uh, when the old man shuffles off the table. He says, hop off this table. And he like drags his ass off the table. Yeah. And then he says, nice hopping. Is the first great, great line of the movie. And then when he stabs like himself. Like a bunch of broccoli. <laughs> That's yes. great. That line I always killed me as a kid. And the physical comedy when he gets that scalpel in his thigh. Oh. And he looks at it. <laughs> he opens his palm and then he closes it back around. His physical comedy is amazing. And what I didn't realize, I knew they wrote this together. I knew this was like a, a joint venture more than, you know, Producers was a Mel Brooks movie that he cast Gene Wilder in. And then... Blazing Saddles, Gene Wilder was doing him a favor. He had lost, I mean, I believe he he wrote on it, I believe, but uh, 
he wasn't supposed to be in it. They had a, another actor. It was another guy. Yeah, and he was drunk. It was like yeah. an old Western star of the day. I can't remember yeah. who. And he, but he was, he was an old drunk and he, he was too drunk, couldn't yeah. make it, couldn't get through the performance and they mm-hmm. lost him early on. And Mel Brooks tearfully called up Gene Wilder to come in and, and, and replace the guy. And he did. But this, Wilder kept bringing him this script. Wilder brought him Young Frankenstein and, and Mel Brooks was like, eh. He was like, yeah, it's cute. He was like, it was cute. He didn't, he didn't really want to do it at first. Or Wilder got the impression like, all right, not, you know, he's, he's not as into it as I thought he'd be. And then Wilder's agent called him and said, hey, 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 do you have anything for you, Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman to do together? And really? he's like, I do. Yeah. He's like, I do. And he sent the script and there, and then the studio was like, well, we want Mel Brooks to direct it. Gene Wilder said, you can direct it, but you can't be in it because when you're in it, <gasps> you tend to break the fourth wall. <gasps> and I don't want to do that. I think the way to make, and what I think really what makes this movie work so well is that we have to play it deadly serious. And I think that goes, so you know, smart. you don't really think of Mel Brooks as, you think of Mel Brooks as just Mel Brooks, you know, this guy who makes these funny bit movies, but he does a pretty great job directing this movie. I mean, this is, he just nails the style of those old universal, you know, especially the, the, obviously the 1930, whatever it was, 1931 James Whale movie. He just, they nail it with like the, the film stock and the editing and the The music production design, John Morris's music. It is perfect. It looks like it could be Frankenstein. Yeah. That's the thing. There isn't really a lot of that breaking the fourth wall, which Mel Brooks does bring that aspect to his movies. And I think that's what elevates it. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, even with blazing saddles, which is brilliant as well. I mean, it just turns into anarchy and gets crazy at the end and becomes like Looney Tunes where they literally run off the set, you know, and which is, which is brilliant. Favorite. That's yeah. my favorite of them. Blazing Saddles is, yeah. I, I always think like, which is, you know, because again, these are the twin pillars. Like we said yeah. this last episode about, uh, about Will Ferrell and saying like Elf and Anchorman is probably the twin pillars of his career. And they came out six months apart. Same mm. thing with this. This was like, I think Blazing Saddles must have been summertime. And then this came out, obviously, Christmas time in that same year. And I think they're, they still stand as certainly as Mel Brooks's, uh, along with producers in my mind, you know, his, his great, great achievements. But I always lean, if I, I think you're either a Blazing Saddles person or a Young Frankenstein person in terms of which you prefer slightly. And, uh, and for me, it's always been Blazing Saddles, probably because of the, uh. that anarchy, because I like the fourth wall busting yeah. Warner Brothers cartoon, Mad Magazine. I like that in, mm-hmm. in my goofy comedy, uh, but I do, you know, I'm so impressed by the fidelity this has to the original and Gene Wilder's right. It's what makes it work so well. By the time you get to put it on the Ritz, which is maybe oh one of the greatest God. like comedic showpieces ever. It's I so played so. out now, like you've seen it so many times, but oh, it no. always <laughs> works yeah. every time. It's just, it's amazing. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? (laughs) Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. (laughs) Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Cooper, Cooper! 
Some let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or rumbarellas in their midst. It's so, genius. He's it's so good. Comic <laughs> genius. Yeah, and it's really the is. one. Have you read this? It's the one argument that Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks ever had on yes. any film was that Mel Brooks thought that putting on the Ritz was too much. He was oh. like, he was like, I don't think. I think it's a little. No. It's a little much. It's a little far flung. He wanted to cut it, and mm-hmm. and Gene Wilder said it got like a half hour of screaming him red in the face. It's like you have to keep it. You have to keep it. And he was like, well, if you feel that passionately, we'll keep it in. And it is the height of the movie. And I think. I don't think the movie ever. Uh, to me, the movie peaks there, and and then uh, the rest of it, I kind of for, I forgot a lot of it. I know the mm. first two thirds of it, I think, so so well, and I yeah. think that's because I've probably watched this movie so many times. And after putting on the Ritz, I'm like, ah, I don't need to finish it. <laughs> I mean, it feels like that's the great. I mean, there are great moments after that, but even watching it the other night, I was like, yeah, nothing. Nothing ups the ante beyond that for me. So I guess uh, you're right. You know, the, 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 the great thing about why I'm so glad that Gene Wilder convinced him to keep it in because you've earned it by that point. You know, you've had just enough crazy. You've had just enough, you know, serious tribute and you've had just enough, um, of of what's at, understanding what's at stake for 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 Gene Wilder's character for for uh, you know and and he and by that point has he he has accepted he said my name is Frankenstein <laughs> he said it by then right has that happened before that which oh, I think I'm is a, a sure it has moment. yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's accepted it. So so you you're you're fully invested by then, and then you need a crazy, silly release by that point in the movie, and and you you get it um, with putting on the Ritz. But I think you're right, Jason. Yeah. Does it ever reach those comic heights again? I don't know. I don't but I don't know so. that it needs to. It you know, I, you I, have I, the I Madeline like Kahn scenes with Peter Boyle, which are pretty fantastic. I remember yeah, seeing that. Great. They, I remember many years ago uh, when Kate and I first started dating, they re released it in the big screens, and they were playing. We saw it in Chelsea, and Kate had never seen it before. Oh my god! And wow. when Madeline Kahn starts to sing. You know, sweet mistress. She was howling. Kate was screaming. Oh my God. Woof. I'm, I'm, I'm engaged. And, and once he took, but, but I didn't, it was never enough time. All the, uh, oh my, uh, uh, there's so many as i was watching this i'm just writing down lines i'm like oh my god this is just as quotable for me as like caddyshack there's so many great lines i mean we've said i think i said it in the comedy the comedy special that we did one of my favorite comedic lines ever is the overtine yes that that scene between leachman and wilder is per Perfection. That is, is yeah. a study in comic timing. I yeah. don't, there, there's nothing better than that. The time they take, the looks they give each other, it's incredible. <laughs> but I just forgot, oh, you know, the, the line that I, I completely forgot about, and I was howling when I was rewatching it, was when Gene Wilder's thrown back in the room with him. And he's like, you know, whatever you, whatever, whatever oh, you hear favorite. me scream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And he's like, get me out of here. Get me out of here. And he finally turns and faces him and he just goes, hello, handsome. 
Hello, handsome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he killed me. And he's just trying to like fuck him up. Uh, it's oh, really God, great. I forgot great. about it. I screamed. I spit in my coffee out watching it. I know. I laughed so out loud a lot watching it. The Ovaltine scene is so great. I was like watching it and I was like, what is it about? It's so fun to watch. It's the precision. Like, it's the precision yes. of everything. It's the biggest thing that I think makes that work is her body language. If you watch her, she's holding on to kind of a bedpost and she's just, she's pivoting just yes. like, she's like a gate, a swinging gate, but yes. she, you know, but it's very mechanical. She goes and then she stops and pivots back and gives the exact same physicality every time. And that's yeah. the thing about it that I'm like, I think that's what makes it so fucking funny. And whenever he barks at her, she kind of closes yes, her eyes her and bites her lips of it. slightly. Yeah. She abs- it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She absorbs the shock of it. Would the doctor care for a brandy before retiring? No. Thank you. Some warm milk? Perhaps? No. Thank you very much. No thanks. Ovaltine. Nothing. Thank you. I'm a little tired. Where it's coming from is because she was in love with his grandfather. So she needs to care for him, you know, for Gene Wilder. And that's where it's all, that's what's underneath it. And that's what makes it so great. He was my boyfriend is the great, I think that's my favorite thing in the movie. He was my My boyfriend. boyfriend. That is, that is, I think that's my favorite thing in the movie. She's a genius. She's a goddamn genius. Terry Garr is great. You know, the, the women, the women are so great in this. It's a triumvirate of three great comic performances. Leachman, I think at the top, you know, and Madeline Kahn and, and, and Terry Garr. Yes, the women are fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. fantastic. And so committed and specific. You get three, three, three great lessons in comedy from the three of them. They're great. so earnest. It's so earnest. Yeah. Yeah. Taffeta. And that's, again, I think that's what makes the movie work so yeah, well, yeah, you know, and yeah. thank God that Mel Brooks was like, all right, I'm just going to focus on going behind the camera. And again, I mean, I really, I never think of Mel Brooks as a great director. You know, mm. I think like what he, what he uh-huh. does is great, but I don't think of him like in terms of, you know, how he composes a movie, but he, for this, for, for, for getting that, you know, for parroting, but it's not even, a, it, I mean, he does, it is a, it yeah. is a parody, obviously, but you never feel you never feel it's a parody. You feel like he's actually making a universal monster right. movie, and he yeah. does it so yeah. well. He does it really yeah. well, and, and and he's doing he's taking it, doing an homage to it, and and doing something. You know, he's doing a quarter turn on it just enough to say this is the thing, and I'm also commenting on the thing for me the twin pillars of his career are life sucks and dracula dead and loving it i'll, I'll show myself out <laughs> i i do i also love i love the uh the use of it, it, you know in all the heightened quality and the earnestness of it all it is things like he was my boyfriend of all, it's like <laughs> technically yes. true but the right. word to use that word Dude, that word it minimizes it it's so casual and it's so contemporary <laughs> yes. the same way 
the same way in that scene, Kate was laughing. She was like, she thought it was so funny that Gene Wilder says uh, when they first hear the monster in the other room, you know, and it's like he's misinterpreting it as Marty Feldman enjoying the soup or the food or whatever. And he says, uh, he says, you made the yummy noise. <laughs> and he says, the yummy noise, which is perfect because that is what it is. The, what other word <laughs> would you use? But it, So it undercuts it so brilliantly. And so it's so it's so great. It's so the, the, the little the, all the like the little there was a lot of physicality that I got on this last rewatch. Little things of when Gene Wilder goes into the library right before the Ovaltine scene where he's looking at the books. He's like, you mm-hmm. find these books in anyone's, you know, uh, library and just <laughs> slams the book shut. Really fast, yes. just you know that sometimes when they when they first go into the laboratory and he throws his arms against the bookshelf there, and that's when he realizes. And then what, what's the name of the book? How I Did It by Victor <laughs> Frankenstein. <Fox. laughs> Amazing. That was didn't OJ write that? That was yeah. OJ's book. Oh my! Oh boy! God! He has he touches all these films in different ways. Now what does that got to do with anything? I give this one ten Schmanzenstuppers. Yeah, ten very large Schmanson Stuppers. Sweet mystery of life. I give it ten as well. How can I? I I mean, it's it's. I I don't know. I mean, I I feel like there's there's nothing I can say that's in the negative column here. I was never bored. I was truckling throughout the whole thing, laughing, sometimes crying, laughing. I mean, it's 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 a uh, it's kind of a perfect comic creation. You know? Why am I so churlish? I have nine point five down, but why? (gasps) You little child. But no, but I mean. You're more of a blading saddles. You need a little bit of that blazing saddles lunacy to to bring it over the top for you. Maybe. Like producers is definitely a 10 for me. And then I'm like, would would blazing Mm. saddles be 10? Yeah. See, I like this better than producers. Because producers, to me, fizzles out a bit. Yeah, it does too. You're right. It, it gets You're a right. little dated. That's the thing. Blazing Saddles, by doing that crazy thing, and maybe that's what Mel Brooks needs to do, is like, needs to blow it out the back end. <laughs> Sorry. Now what does that got to do with anything? <laughs> that's, you know, he doesn't quite know sometimes how to wrap it all up and end on a high note. And Blazing okay. Saddles does that so brilliantly by having it all spill out into the Warner yes. Brothers lot. Um, no, I'll, all right, I'll, I'll stick... Uh, no, it seems churlish. This is such a classic. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go 9.75. So ridiculous. Oh I don't know why I'm God. inching Look back at you from with the, the 10. seven fives this I week. I know, but, uh, but it is brilliant. It's amazing. Sack? We got a lot of mail sack stuff. Oh. A lot of mail sack stuff from our last oh. holiday episode. Yeah. Although let's, let's mention, um, we have a big, we have a big episode coming up. A big, a big event coming up, Jason, that I think uh, you might want to tell people it's about. The, uh, it's the Golden Sheilas. You remember the Golden Sheilas from last year where we, we reward ourselves for all our good deeds? <laughs> uh, yes, last year we, uh, we, we got good and drunk at about eight in the morning and, uh, and we talked about the Star Wars holiday special. And then we proceeded to uh, wrap up the year with, uh, with our, our first annual Golden Sheila Awards. And we called it first annual, which means we have to do it annually now. So if you, uh, anyone out there who wants to pitch in ideas for, uh, 
categories for us to uh, for us to mine the depths of our <laughs> of our catalog and, uh, and, and come up with uh, with uh, uh, nominees and winners for uh, great moments from uh, from uh, this year of this stellar year of podcasting. I'm sure, right. I'm sure you can uh, agree. It's been impeccable. What were some of our categories last year? We had best shallot, I think. We the had shallot. Uh, our, uh, the best shallot moment. Uh, we had best argument. Ooh. Among the three of us. Uh, Best childhood stories. Yeah, I think we must have had that. Slash traumas. Yes. Uh, We had uh, what was the best movie we saw that year? Best uh, worst movie we saw that year? Yeah. What Mm. the best overall episode was? Make up your Um, own golden shield. I could be anything. That's that's kind of what I'm asking for. Yeah. Any, uh, you know, any categories that you uh, (laughs) see fit or just favorite memories from uh from the past year, things that stood out to you that you want uh, us to highlight. Uh, we'll be uh, drinking some nog and talking <laughs> about all of that uh, in a couple of weeks time on episode 67, which will also include, I'll just say this up, up front now, it uh, will include our review. It's the 20th anniversary of Peter Jackson's first Lord of the Rings movie. And Dang. we are going to talk about Fellowship of the Ring as our main review. And then we're going to just go off the rails and hand out some Sheilas, hand out some beautiful golden Sheilas. Yeah. Any favorite moments of the Arthropod Squad? There haven't been as many uh, of late. Um, oh, favorite you know. phone calls? Favorite that was phone one from call. last year. Favorite phone call, right. which I already have. I already figured that that out for myself. But okay. save that. Yeah, it's getting harder so. for me to remember. Like, like the the years now are starting to blend. We're getting older together. That's what yes. it is. Yeah, <laughs> we're a year older. I, I, yeah. I'm having trouble remembering what was the first episode of this. Was it uh, Magnum Force? Was that the first one of the new? I think you're probably year? right. I think that. Yes, I, ha- I, think I think you're you're exactly right. Yeah, we'll double check. But yeah, it was either that or the scent of a woman one. But I think you're right. I think it was Exorcist, okay. Magnum Force, and uh, The Sting. Oh, yeah, because we joked about, oh. you know, you're like, what did you do? What were you doing on Christmas oh. Day? And we're like, oh, we we're obviously saying that's Magnum right. Force and Exorcist. That's right. That's um, right. Speaking I of holidays and getting to the sack, I, I want to first <laughs> address an apology to one of our listeners, uh, wow, Melanie wow. Marin Pell, who what? and I sent you this because she apparently had just uh, signed up to a Facebook group called the 2021 Avoid Mariah Carey's fucking Christmas song like COVID <laughs> game. Stupid. And the whole and and we ruined it. We basically ruined it for her because she's like, I just joined, and then I started to listen to episode sixty five, and a couple of minutes in, boom, I was done. I know it's so sad. And this episode will also release before Christmas, and so it would really be it would be terrible if she got knocked down even farther in the game <gasps> by having me cue Mariah Carey again. All I want. And again. Oh, <laughs> and one more time for good measure. <laughs> How many until you lose? You. <laughs> Probably this many. You're not this in many. the middle of an apology to this listener. Oh. I don't, I'm not apologizing for Mariah Carey anymore. That's what I, I, I shan't. Listen, what is her I'm name? I'm with you, Jason. What's her name? I love that song. She's Melanie. a very nice woman. Me- Melanie, I know how to balance it out. Cue Joe Dolce. Shut up your face. <laughs> <laughs> now you'll win every competition. 
That's true. Two dollops of Dolce really does counteract. <laughs> Two sweet, sweet dollops. Speaking of Scrooges, my my dad agrees with you guys. His favorite is Alistair Sim. He uh, he was raving about. Oh, that's it. He agrees with uh, Dan. With Dan, right? right. Yes, um, he didn't God agree with you. God bless you, Maury Berman. I, uh, you know, here's one thing that the podcast listeners need to know. Oh, Fred's boy. father, Maury, has always, and I mean always, since the moment he known he's known me, has said, "Dan, don't tell Fred, don't tell Jason, you're my favorite actor," and that is absolutely the truth. That's absolutely true, and I'm not exaggerating. I was his favorite. I was and still am his favorite. He hasn't seen you in a while. Man. Now, now, wait a minute. And my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, rest her soul. She had a, she had a thing for Damatisa as well. Thank you. Thank you. And thank I you. thought they, both of those people have exhibited excellent taste in the past. <laughs> and I, How are they so off? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is How it about so it? What do you have on them? What, what Listen, is it? I have a thing called magic. I have a thing <laughs> called uh, charisma. We've got magic to do. Yes, do. you do. You do. Okay. It's true. Okay. And uh, Maury felt it. Maury knew it. Sandy, he not knew. as much, but Maury knew it. <laughs> Sandy was more of a Jason fan, but yeah. Maury knew I don't know about So thank that. you. No, I, I agree. Know. The Alistair Sim. And uh, listen- I've I've done a Scrooge or two in my time. I right. the the only one for me that can top Alistair Sims Scrooge is Dan Matisse's Scrooge. Oh Jesus! If you do say so yourself, yeah, and I'm very humble about it. Cue Mariah Carey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a few things here. Ooh, uh, a few a few people sending in their list. First of all, my wife Kate. She was listening to the episode and she constructed her top ten. Please. Holiday list. I'm just going to rattle it off for you right Please now. Share. I think it's a great list. Number 10, Gremlins. Uh, number mm-hmm. nine, Batman Returns. She's a big <gasps> fan of that one. Yeah, number good, eight, good, Elf. Good. Number seven, Love Actually. Six, yes. White Christmas. Five, Fred Claus. Four, Home Alone. Three, Bridget Jones's Diary. What? Which does, what? does uh, again, starts and ends at Christmas. Like a lot of these movies sure. where we're like, is it purely a Christmas movie? No, but Christmas is a big uh, is a big part of it. It's where she meets uh, Colin Firth's character um, at the very beginning. And then uh, the movie ends on Christmas, I believe. Uh, number Perfect. two, Die Hard. She loves Die Hard. Oh, and yeah. her number one Christmas film is The Muppet Christmas Carol. That is, I go. knew it was her favorite Christmas Carol, but... Uh, uh, but I, I'm surprised it's the only one on this list because I know she wow. likes Scrooge as oh, well. Oh, speaking of Fred Claus, um, my friend Rosie jumped in and said that you're a genius for saying that because she loves that movie as well. Yeah, So there are other Rosie. Fred Claus lovers out there. Um, now, am, am I crazy? Did I not hear It's a Wonderful Life on Kate's list? Yeah, you did not hear It's a Wonderful you Life need on to leave Kate's her. list. Why is she? Yeah, why is she? She uh, actually she read Satan. her list to me before. Um, oh, and uh, she's texting me from the other room. Her uh, her, her special mention, it's the uh, the Puppy for Hanukkah video. Uh, David Diggs, Puppy for, uh, I want a Puppy for Hanukkah. You know that? It was very big last year. What the fuck are you talking about? It's a, it's just a music video. It's very funny. It's very charming. Um, is that right, Kate? Text me if I said that right. How come No Wonderful yeah. Life? Is she against you know, the... Because, uh, no, actually, she because she gave me her list before she heard mine. And then no. she said, she was like, oh, you're right. And then a bunch of the things that I had on there, she was like, oh. And then she said, you know what? I'm glad I made my list before I heard yours and before I was reminded of some of those movies. Because as much as she does love It's a Wonderful Life, she's like, 
I want to give all these movies love. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep them on there. But yeah, as you can tell, she's more, she's more of the unconventional Christmas movie lover. You know what movie came up that I forgot about? Timorenko mentioned, this should have been on my list. I forgot about it. The Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Terrific. That was always one of my favorites. But that's a special. Uh, But that's a TV special. Yeah, but it is my favorite Yeah, but I still put TV specials on mine. I know, but you you did it for a specific reason. One of mine was the CBS spinning special logo. (laughs) I don't go by your rules. Abby Slayman, another listener, wrote in. Abby she Normal? To give me, Abby Normal uh, No, Abby Slayman. Oh. Um, uh, Slayman. 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 OJ? Like OJ. Exactly. That's what <laughs> oh I was going for. Thank God you. Oh, my God in heaven. Thank you. Oh, what does that got to do with anything? Shut up your face. Yes. Abby wrote in with her top five. She gave me her top five. Number five was Elf. Number four, Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the movie, the Jim Carrey film. She said, uh, mm-hmm. Ron Oof. Howard dedicated this to his mother who loved Christmas. And uh, that Ron always Howard directed me. that? Yeah. He yeah. directed How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oof. And uh, uh, her number three, she gets into uh, TV specials here. She's a Charlie Brown Christmas. I know it was made for TV, but I'm classifying it as a movie because we got to see it on the big screen at the Charles Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa tears streaming down my face through the whole thing uh her number two is a movie called black nativity which i do Hmm. not know and her number one was it's a wonderful life but then she said her husband reminded her that she said the other day i told him that scrooged is my favorite so i guess it depends on the day what i like best and also Uh. she says mr magoo is the best Christmas Carol, even though it's a TV special. <laughs> uh, and, and I do love Mr. Magoo's. The uh, Razzleberry dressing for that moment alone. It's so, so good. Alone. Oh, Razzleberry dressing would be nice. Um, we also had a couple more. We had uh, our, oh, our dear friend, Pat King, who uh, joined Pat. us for the uh, our Shakespeare episode. She did the Shakespeare countdown with us, uh, a dear friend. Uh, she wrote and said... Uh, my number two is The Lion in Winter. It warms the heart because no matter how dysfunctional your family is, those folks make you feel glad you are not them. <laughs> she said, uh, besides which the screenplay, the performances, etc., are all perfect. Uh, perfect? I think perfect. I was trying to say perfection, and then I realized she wrote perfect. They're all perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas to all of you. Love, Pat. Um, I bet she did say that's her number two, and she never clarified. What's her number one, for God's She sake. never clarified her number one. I know it's you said. for life. That's it's what I be. think. I think she's uh, just agreeing with us that that's the number one yeah. Christmas movie. But Pat, right in if, it we've, is. if we've got you wrong. It. Um, and then our dear friend, Vinny Penna, he wrote in, let's see, do I have that here? Yes. Hey, fellas. Uh, thanks for those holiday movie recommendations. There were many I'd never heard of and need to revisit. I've only mm. seen It's a Wonderful Life once. I know. I'm sorry. <sighs> he says, my holiday fare usually consists of Scrooged, a Blackadder Christmas Carol. That's very oh. good. That Yule Log, which you will confirm was almost always the sole output of WPIX in our childhood during the holidays. Oh, absolutely. Along with yes. March of the Wooden Soldiers, Fred. I yeah, remember yeah. that. It was the Yule Log and March of the Wooden Soldiers. And, of course, A Christmas Story. I love that it's on 24-7 throughout most of late December. The marathon tradition of A Christmas Story got me thinking of an omission from all three of your lists. And I must admit, it's a movie I've never seen. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. 
that goddamn movie is on about as much as a Christmas story. And matter of fact, I believe it's one of the few holiday movies you can regularly see at other times throughout the year. So was its absence an accident or intentional? As I say, I've never seen it, but it seems to be regarded as a holiday comedy classic by many. So it surprised me. It didn't make your lists. Uh, I will say the funny thing is, it, I don't think it was ever going to make any of our lists, but mm-hmm. it was going to be the 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 featured review we chose to do scrooged instead just because i was flirting with which weekend we wanted to cover and i knew it wanted to be a weekend with one movie and one holiday movie since we were going to do a top 10 list but yeah for a long time national lampoon's christmas vacation was going to be the main review and then we changed it at the last minute and it's because i kind of posed it to the guys and dan you had a kind of visceral reaction <laughs> i really dislike that movie I, I mean talk about it it's the opposite of young frankenstein it's a bit it's trying so hard to be a bit machine and and the and the bits just don't don't work because we don't care yeah it's pretty funny when he puts all the lights on his house that's yeah. that's pretty okay uh, nothing else in this thing made me laugh it was we were kind of just sitting there going what is the big deal about this movie we love the first vacation but this thing is falls flat over and over I do like it. I would never no. put it on. I, I would never get, uh, it would not be a high Sheila movie for me, but I really do like it. And I do tend to watch it at least once over the holidays, partly because it's on. It's always on. Too. How many Sheila's for National Lampoon's Christmas vacation? Seven. What did I, I give? Really nothing get- but trouble. Cause I give this slightly <laughs> less, slightly less. Nothing but double what you gave. Nothing but triple. Uh, <laughs> and, and I have one clarification. Oh, uh, nobody called this out and I thought somebody would, but I'll clarify it anyway. We talked a lot last episode about how Bill Murray took a break between Ghostbusters and Scrooge 1984 mm. to 1988 with Didn't he do little, Razor's Edge? He did do Razor's Edge, but he filmed Razor's Edge before Ghostbusters. Oh, it came okay. out gotcha, after gotcha. Ghostbusters, but the lore is that the way the studio got him to do Ghostbusters was by promising him that they would make Razor's Edge. He said, right, you're right. going to film it first. I'm going to make sure you make it f- uh, because okay. I won't come to work on Ghostbusters until that's done. So he completely finished Razor's Edge, then went and did Ghostbusters. Razor's Edge released three or four months later uh, yeah, after Ghostbusters. Mm. But in terms of him and his work life, he did Ghostbusters and then the next leading role was Scrooge. But yeah, yeah. Razor's Edge is the one that uh, didn't get mentioned last episode, but that's, ah, that's the reason right there. So I've never right. seen that. Is it any good? I never saw Razor's Edge. I've only seen clips of it. It was a big, uh, I mean, it was not a well-reviewed thing and he was very right. disappointed that it, it was like he was ready to go serious before the world was ready for him to go serious. So it's, Makes it's sense. nice that he, has done that successfully now and that, you yeah. know what I mean? That, um, but you know, know what we needed in between him doing that, we needed some buffers. Well, Murray's got a lot of buffers. <sighs> we need a little comedic buffer. And they said, yeah, Bill Murray. And they said, Bill Murray did this. And they said, Bill Murray did that. And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> Pulling the two most <laughs> random quotes from Godfather 2. Oh, but yeah, it's so sure, good. Because I fucking love that actor. What is his name? Gazzo? Yeah. Michael Gazzo. Gazzo. Michael mm. Gazzo. Frankie Pentageli. Great yeah. character. Great character. We'll talk it's about him. I, 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 yeah, it made me think. Uh, well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it as we <gasps> talk about a little something called <laughs> The Godfather Part 2. Hey. Don Vito Corleone and his son, Michael. Both had seen the ones they loved most cut down before their eyes. Pizza! Stay in the 
Both had killed as an act of vengeance. Both commanded the most powerful and merciless crime organization in the world. The second installment in the Godfather trilogy serves as both a sequel and a prequel to The Godfather, presenting parallel dramas, one picking up the 1958 story of Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, the new Don of the Corleone family, protecting the family business in the aftermath of an attempt on his life. The prequel covers the journey of his father, Vito Corleone, played by Robert De Niro, from his Sicilian childhood to the founding of his family enterprise in New York City. Following the success of the first film, Paramount Pictures began developing a follow-up, with much of the same cast and crew returning. Francis Ford Coppola, who was given more creative control over the film, knew that he wanted to tell the story of the rise of Vito and the fall of Michael. The movie only received mixed reviews when it was first released, but it soon became the subject of critical reappraisal, and the film was famously nominated for 11 Academy Awards and became the first sequel in history to win for Best Picture. Its six Oscar wins also included Best Director for Coppola, Best Supporting Actor for Robert De Niro, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Coppola and Mario Puzo. Pacino was snubbed, I say, (laughs) for Best Actor, but did win the BAFTA Award that year, uh, although he would not go on to win uh, an Oscar for Best Actor until 1992's Scent of a Woman. I'm in the dark here! The Godfather Part Two made $13 million over its opening weekend and $48 million when all was said and done. Fred and Dan, although it's made, obviously, gajillions more uh, Mm. since on home video and the like. But Fred and Dan, what did you guys think of The Godfather Part 2? Well, someone came up to me just the other day and they asked, they said, what do you like better, Godfather 1 or Godfather 2? What's your favorite? And I can't answer that. I know when we did our gangster list, I put Godfather 1 above it, but I was flip-flopping back and forth until... We actually announced our list. Mm. I don't know. I love this movie. I love it just as much as the first one. Mm. Maybe I'd put the first one. I, I don't know. Like gun to my head, you know, a gun or a cannoli to my head. I might uh-huh. say the first one, but I love this movie so much. And as I think I mentioned on that, on the Goodfellas episode, I saw this before I saw the first Godfather. And I think I talked about this in other episodes as well. In our den, in the back. Yes, I did, because I remember talking about the Bill Moyers interview with George Lucas. Uh Like, we had all these VHS tapes in the back of our den, and they were, I remember there was that. There was one with Young Frankenstein, I remember, that was on there. You know, handwritten Mm -hmm. on the tapes. But there was also, my parents had The Godfather 1 and 2, and it was like a VHS box set that had just come out, or... Or maybe it wasn't the box set, it was the individual movies, but I always remember them being there and always being scared of them as a kid because, you know, it was like a black cover, there's this weird old man on the cover, they looked like dark <laughs> movies and adult movies. So then cut to my junior year, when I'm finally introduced to these actors and these directors, and I'm saying, oh God, I want to watch these movies, and I... Wanted to watch Godfather 2 because I knew De Niro was in that. And on the yeah. back of the box, if you turn the VHS box, there was I remember there was a picture of Michael Corleone being frisked walking into the court when he brings mm. Frankie Pentageli's brother with him. Mm. And there was also a picture of De Niro as Vito Andolini kissing the, uh, the, the, the fingers of the, the Don in Italy that he's about to, you know, stab oh, in the stomach. Yeah, Don Cicci. So I thought, all right, is De Niro's in this. I got to watch this. And I remember my dad saying... Don't, don't you want to watch the first one first? And me going, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. And he's like, you're going to be really confused. And I thought, no, I'll be good. I'll be good because De Niro's in this. I just want to watch this. 
I was completely confused the first time I saw him. I had no, I really had no idea what was going on. Yeah. I didn't care because all I cared about was the De Niro scenes. That being said, since then, I've seen it multiple times since then. And uh, yeah, I just, I love it. I love it. I love the, you know, it's funny. I went back and I read some of the reviews, you know, you said they got mixed reviews when it came out yeah. and I don't really understand them. A lot of people complain about the pacing of it mm-hmm. and where they put some of the flashback sequences. Mm. I, I think th- it all works beautifully. Uh, and yes. I love how it's like a story of a father and a son around the same age, you know? Yeah. And like you said, like the rise of, Don Corleone and the decline of Michael Corleone. And I said this on the Goodfellas episode too. It's, it's definitely a much, it's a colder movie to me. I get a colder feeling from it, which I think is by design. You know, I right away, it takes, they're in Lake Tahoe now, you know, there's something just cold about that. Mm. And you just see like, you know, we've talked about this as well in terms of Pacino's performances. There's something so in, you know, he's got his explosions, including over, which is, you know, his most Which famous one. I thought was from cruising. Fred says it all the time. And I was like, why does he want to be turned over? Oh, I'm sorry. But I really literally was like, oh, Fred, that must be from cruising. I don't know why. Sorry. I thought it was on. from I thought it was from the end of author author when he go, my career is over. I thought it was from that. Or from Revolution. <laughs> no, but he's so, you know, other than like the little explosions, you know, uh, he's he's so turned inward and there's something, I mean, you're, you're right, Jason, he's he should have won. He's, his performance is brilliant because he's so, he's so fucking smart. And, he, and one of the reasons why I think the first several times I, I watched this movie, I mean, I was absolutely confused the first time because I didn't know really, you know, I didn't know the backstory, but it is a little confusing in terms of the machinations of what's going on. And it's because he holds everything so close to the vest. Yeah. You never know what he's thinking. And yet he always knows what everyone else is thinking. There's the one moment where, well, two moments, one where Kay gets one over on him. You know, yeah. where he thinks he know he thinks he's he's pulling the strings and he knows exactly yeah. how to, to mm-hmm. get Kay to stay and she springs a surprise on him. And also the fact that Hyman Roth really did sort of get one over on him too, where he's got the meeting with uh with with Tom Hagen trying to figure out like, oh man, you know, and, and Robert Duvall even says, Tom Hagen goes, you know, he really played this beautifully, and there's just this flash of anger behind Pacino's mm. eyes because it's sort of the first time where where Michael Corleone really isn't in control, but he plays it. Everything is so internal and he never gives anything away because he can't, he's got to close everyone off. He's got to be completely shut off from everyone to survive and to protect what he thinks is protecting his family. But he loses it all. Exactly. But he loses loses everything. And that's why he goes to him and says, what if I were to lose everything? You know, Uh, what do you mean? And he's, you know, what, what would there ever be a, a moment where I could, you know, with that scene with the mother, right. Which is, yeah. um, I totally forgot that that was in the movie and it was very, very powerful. And yeah. she's going, what do you mean? Lose, lose what? And she's like, lose it all, lose everything, lose the family. She's like, you're not going to lose the family. And then that's exactly, exactly yeah. uh, what happens. I love the, you know, you said, Jason, in the intro, the rise of one and the fall of the other. Mm-hmm. And, um, what, what, struck me on this 
re- I, I was among those who was like, no, no, Godfather is the far superior movie. Far superior. I, I, I just, I, Godfather 2 always, always confused me. Yes. And still does. Yes. I still don't 100% Dan, understand the whole Havana thing. I mean, and, and, never and have. The, the, the what don't double- you understand? Uh, it gets basically very complex. All of it. it really gets basically very all of it. I, I don't understand what. So the Pantangeli, the, the the Danny Aiello, the Rosado, the Biggs Rosati brothers were working, <laughs> were doing it. We were doing Barbara Seville for a while, but then they started working for <laughs> Hyman Roth. Okay, they have a beef with Pantangeli. Pantangeli yeah. comes to Michael and says. You need to take, I need permission to move against the Rosati brothers. Michael denies that because the Rosati brothers are working with Hyman Roth and he has business deals with Hyman Roth. Okay. I'm there. I, I get that. Now explain to me what happens after that. Because once they're going to go to Havana, they're going to open all these, there's going to be a new government and they're going to be able to control the government. That's what they're no, talking. I mean, I, mean, as far, I mean, as far as the machinations between those oh. three entities, Roth, the Rosati brothers and Pantangeli, I do not understand what develops mm. in as far as who's double crossing who after that. And I st- and I paid really close attention I this know, time and too. I still don't understand. Yeah, no, that was the part that I, for years, I never understood. And I think I finally have a grasp on it. It's basically, so Pacino says, you got to, uh, Corleone, Michael Corleone says, you got to make nice with the, with, with, with the brothers, with the Correct. big Rosati brothers. Okay. You got to yes. do that because I have business to do. Okay. And Tadley's like, fuck you, but I'll do it. So he goes and he meets with them. Right. They double, Danny Aiello comes. Yeah, we're all real happy about your decision, Frankie. You're not going to regret it. I don't like to see no Rosato. I take that as an insult. Michael Corleone ah! says hello. They leave him for dead, and he says he's, he he says Michael Corleone, Michael Corleone says, hello. says hello. So right. they're setting Frankie up to think that Michael Corleone double crossed him. It's really, but, he but they're did in, not. He did not. They're okay, in with Hyman Roth. That okay. That's why Tom Hagen says later, man, he played this beautifully. So but they don't Roth kill Frankie. Is, Pan- go ahead. Go ahead. No, they don't. They don't kill Frankie Pantaggi for a reason. They leave him alive, so he thinks that Michael Corleone. They don't kill him. I know, but I thought that the reason they didn't kill him is just because that cop shows up. That's that they what had I a, every intention of killing him, yeah. and and it went awry. Yes. Uh, I don't think I never got that impression because why would they say Michael Corleone says That's hello? Part of what's confusing to I, me. I think they purposely. I mean, you might be right, and maybe that is a confusing aspect of it. I think they left him alive because they wanted him to turn against Michael Corleone as well. They wanted to turn everyone against him. So they're setting it up. You just got double-crossed. Mm. So Hyman Roth was, yeah, he was like pulling these strings He's all pulling along. all the strings the entire time. Pretty much, yeah. And he's fooling that whole scene, all the scenes between Strasburg and yeah. Michael when Michael goes down there. He's he His only... Mo Hyman Ross only mo is to is to basically bait Michael and rope him in more because the the killing of Michael went, went the, the shooting of Michael and Kay went wrong was unsuccessful. Yeah, he wanted him taken out of the picture right from the beginning. That's why Michael, it happened so because he was hesitant to invest in the Havana thing. No, I think it's just because these are these are people who want to control their power. You know, and and he he considered all throughout the movie. 
was Abe Vigoda during this whole thing? And where was Bernice? <laughs> How come dead. she doesn't come in? Bernice is He's dead. How come he Bernice had an orange in the in? beginning of the movie. It, the whole thing is from start to finish, people talk about, and, and the, I'll tell you the line that stuck out to me this rewatch that I'd never really noticed before and I think sums up so much of it. People are not a fan of how Michael is running the family. Correct. Tom it's, Hagen it's, says it's, that later. It's diseased and toxified from the beginning. He's like, yeah. used, it used to be this way. Now it's mm-hmm. things aren't what they used to be. And I get that. That's wonderful. That's, That's a part of it. Wonderful. So, and, and I think Hyman Roth is also, these are all people that want to, they want their power. They don't want, you know, they don't want their enemies. I mean, and, and, and Michael Corleone says it. He goes, I'm not interested in wiping everyone out, just my enemies. Well, that stands, that's got to stand for every mob boss too. Hyman Roth, no mob boss is like, yeah, let's all work together. If there's like even a hint of someone else getting more powerful. I mean, I've never been a mob boss, so I, a mob boss, so I, you know, I, I don't know for sure. You've but tried I can to be assume. the boss of this podcast since the beginning. Let's I have, get, and which is why I'm, I'm going to whack all of you guys. Wait, yeah. wait, what? You don't tell the person you're going to whack them. <laughs> that's, you're, that's the worst mob boss of all. But the line that really stuck out to me is when he's talking to Fredo and he says, it's not easy to be a son, Fredo. It's not easy being his son. That's the thing. He's got the shadow of sure. Vito Corleone over him the entire movie. I, I was trying, like you, Dan, to really pay attention and really follow the machinations. Boy, was I? Yeah. But what Couldn't I found ultimately it. was it that didn't matter. Like I, at no, some point, I had matter. to like so, yeah. let that go you because it go. it's um yeah. the thing about it is that it, it. I mean, first of all, I think Coppola is also you know he's puffed up here. He like won the uh, you know I mean the Godfather is instant classic. And here this whole movie feels like a big flex. Like everything is more ambitious. The scope of it is more ambitious. It's It's longer than towering Inferno by about an hour. What does that got to do with anything? Yeah. It's, 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 it's very long, but it's very, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's elaborate. It's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's epic in every way. The music, the cinematography, it's everything. Yeah. And it's a, and it's a, Oh, the cinematography, a, the, the moment, the moment De Niro is following along the rooftops, Don Finucci down yeah. below. Oh, that is gorgeous. That seems incredible. No, all of it. I mean, the, the whole, the sepia tone to the whole yeah. movie past and present in the, in the films. Uh, it, it, it's really, it's really beautiful. And it's very sad. It's sadder than, than the first Godfather to me. Very sad. I mean, it's from the beginning, you see, like, oh, of course, you you, you get the the origin story of Vito Corleone. Violence has marred his whole life, including his father's funeral. His father's dead. And then then his his father's funeral is disrupted by violence, and his brother is killed so that he won't revenge. I mean, from a little, little boy, and then seeing his mother die. I mean, that what that does to him. And then you see him blast a shotgun. You see him come to New York and he's trying to, you know, it's it's fascinating to watch the De Niro uh, section because he really is, he is drawn into it. You feel like he, it, it didn't have to be this way, but it, but but once once he goes down that path, obviously he's incredibly uh, successful, and we all know what happens in The Godfather. But his his portrayal is so so nuanced and so he's beautiful, and I I, I love this. the way he he's constantly studying. He just he's just yes. absorbing everything the same way as a little boy. He absorbs all that death and violence and carries it with him to America. He's absorbing everything around him and all the little idiosyncrasies of human behavior. And he he sees 
he sees nobility and he sees cowardice and he clocks it all. He's clocking it all um, in, yes. in a, a really beautiful way. And that's way. the difference, and, right? And that's the difference between young Vito and Michael on the right, Vito mm, on the rise mm-hmm. and Michael on the rise, right? Vito is doing what, this is what really, really stuck to me this time watching it. Oh, Vito is doing things out of a sense of empathy and justice, right? Yes. Yes. What Don Chicho did to his family is unjust. Therefore, not really, it's, it's revenge. Yes. But it's, it's, it's righting a wrong. It's justice, what he does to him and empathy when he's looking at poor little baby Fredo, you know, and, 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 you know, yeah. and building relationships yeah. with, with young Clemenza and young Tessio and all that. It's the empathy and the justice. Michael, and I think this is why that other scene is in there with James Kahn and Abe Vigoda and everybody. Mm-hmm. Michael is doing things out of a sense of duty. And I think what the movie is trying to say is, that's not a good reason to do something, yeah. you know, that, that being the sole reason, you know, uh, uh, whether it's duty to country or whether it's duty to, it's always, he's trying to please somebody else. You see what I mean? I, I where, 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 uh, out of a sense of just being dutiful to whether it's the country or the father or whatever. But whereas Don Vito is saying, I'm, I'm writing an unjust wrong. And I also truly feel for these people in this community it's funny because it's something that always stuck out to me and you're like, I, yeah, you're absolutely right, Jason. Like, I love how he's just listening and taking stuff in. It's like he's studying Fanucci. He's studying. The him. stuff with Fanucci yes. is incredible, but I love how he's like, he doesn't understand. He's like, I don't get it. Like, he's an Italian. Yeah, why that? Italians. Yeah, right. He's exactly. like, why? What's the big deal? Like, I don't get yeah. it. And he's like, I don't understand the problem. Like. Yeah. He's getting in the way. We're trying to make money. Yeah. He wants to take our money. We're all attacking. Why should here. we give him money? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Let's just get rid of him. Yeah. Like, right. why don't we one plus one equals two? If he's going to do solution. that, then yeah. like right. he's got guns. We've got guns. It's yeah. all very practical. And yeah. And then just about, you know, we're supporting the family. One of my favorite moments when he brings the pair home. And he yeah, puts it on the table, yeah. his wife. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. at that moment where he's like, you know, and, and the way he accepts when, when the, the, the boss has to fire him and, and the way he accepts that and yeah. hugs him and understands. And Empathetic. he's like, don't, yeah, that yeah. he's like, I understand the position you're in. And then he, he, yeah, he goes home with that pair. It's like, here's, here's the thing about, about the way De Niro is, is framed in this, the way Vito's framed and the way Michael is early on. Cause then you see, you see Michael sitting there with that Senator and, uh, you know, that Senator disgusting Gary. senator who, who oh after God. you see everything that his father went through to get to this country and all the heartbreak oh, and all the pain. God, and yeah. then for that guy to sit there and be like, well, I'm a true American and you're not. Yeah. And I don't like your oily hair and you, you know, like yeah. the, the way he talks to him, oh you're, you're, you're in, in, you're enraged. I don't like your kind of people. I don't like to see you come out to this clean country in your oily hair. Dressed up in those silk suits, trying to pass yourselves off as decent Americans. The context of seeing what his family went through and suffered to to be here, you it, it makes you even angrier. And and then when he says, uh, "My offer is this: nothing, not even the fee for the gaming license, which I would appreciate if you would put up personally." 
the movie is building. These are gangsters, right? Vito Corleone, <laughs> Michael Corleone, but he, they're built as heroes. They're building right. hero moments. They're like stand up and cheer moments. Like, yeah, fuck that. Yeah, that's right. Michael Corleone, cold blooded killer, gangster, mafia yeah. don. Murderer. It's like, yeah. it's like he's got the rah rah and cheer moment the same way you're like rooting for Vito Corleone. It sets them up as heroes. And then I think the movie in both cases makes you step back and say, oh, how sad and petty and 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 wasteful and pathetic their codes are. Right. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. obviously what he when he's like, I ha- he has to kill Fredo. Fredo is such a pawn. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You know what I found interesting this time? I I, I, I didn't notice at the beginning because the, the first movie ends with like a sacrament, you know, in church. This one begins with one, you know, mm-hmm. when it goes back to the present oh, the day boy, with, yeah, right. with the boy. But then it was, you know, and they both end with like these big affairs, you know, the first ones with the big wedding. And it's very, yes. it's, it's, it's very much an Italian affair. You know, there's Italian yeah. music playing. Yes, Italian, right. I know and, what you're going to say. And in this, like, they can't even play the Tarantella. It's so watered yeah. down. It's so American and so waspy. It's showing like, you know, he's in yeah. Lake Tahoe yeah. now. He's not in New yeah. York. It's, a, yeah. it's the Americanized. Which I thought was great. And Pentagli's yeah. like, mm-hmm. oh, play the town and tell you know yeah. he's trying to get them to do it and it shows how far michael is from his roots how far he how he, that's he's the got, whole movie the whole yeah. movie is about how he's yeah. so far from those those roots the two chill moments in this movie which i've never again i've i like this more i've always loved it but i i enjoyed it more got more out of it this time than on any other rewatch and was and had more visceral reactions and uh when he because I always forgot how how Michael knows for sure without and the moment when he they're yeah. watching that, you know, sex show or whatever. And, yeah. and he says, says Johnny Ola's name and he gives up that he knows yeah. Johnny Ola. I got this like, oh, that this sick chill through my body that like yeah. that, that bottom drop where you're like, oh, no, oh, no, yeah. oh, no. And then obviously when he dies at the end, but it's not, not because of his death, but the fact that I, I forgot this, that Coppola literally follows up Fredo being shot with all of a sudden James Kahn walks into the frame, like walks yeah. into yeah. the frame. Right. You're not expecting right. it. You're not expecting a flashback. Yeah. You're not, it's not like you're like, Oh, we're in the old house. Oh wait, we're going to start seeing those yeah. actors maybe. And it's just the fact that he just appears and you're like, yeah. what the fuck? That was another chill that ran down my spine. Um, yeah. seeing Cause you have that, you get two things there. You get, Oh, now he is an only child. There are no, well, yes. besides <gasps> Talia Shire, but there are no, there more, are no brothers. more sons, no more, you boys. know, there are no more sons, Talia because Shire he's dead too, but all yeah, she's really too. But you also get, you know, the legacy of violence because yeah. Sonny is the the live wire and the violent one. And you go, well, this is the like, this is part of this legacy. You know, I love that God, when he's a little baby right. and they're like, Sonny, why are you always fighting? Why are you always fighting? Talk about a baby. John Cazale, that scene, that that last scene between Pacino and Cazale, he's in that chair, that like kind yes. of hammocky chair. And he's like, a baby. like a baby. The way his arms yeah. are hanging out of it. The That's way what I was physicality. thinking. He looked like a little baby in one of those kind of bassinet things that that kind of uh, suspends. <gasps> Isn't that amazing? I've always been taken. Obviously, that scene is, you know, it's famous and it's in a brilliantly played scene. But I've always been taken by... 
why they chose to put him. Yeah. I mean, it's great, just like physically, Michael's standing up and he's down, but he's right. so low to the ground. And watching him this time, I'm like, oh my God, he's like in a little baby swing yeah. and yeah. his hands are. That's right. That's, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's, that's exactly I, I, it felt it's, like. it's brilliant. He's so vulnerable. He said that you were being tough on the negotiations, but if they could get a little help and close the deal fast, it, it'll be good for the family. You believe that story? You believe that? He said there was something in it for me, on my own. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taken care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Huh? Did you ever once think about that? I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it! I can handle things. I'm smart. He's so vulnerable. And those he's scenes bouncing where he's like, what down. about me? How come I got passed over and stuff? Oh, my stuff? God, I mean, you guys. Kate, God, Kate, so just, Kate just Uh-oh. texted me from the other room. No, she heard us. We're talking about James Caan. We're talking about the brothers, right? She said, James Caan just tweeted this right now. And it was a, <gasps> it's a photo. It's fine. It's a photo of Coppola, Brando, Caan. Casal and Pacino on the set oh of the first Godfather. My. He just oh, wow. randomly just God. tweeted it just this minute wow. as, as wow. Kate's listening, listening to me recording. He's listening the, to the podcast. Well, it's very cool. It's very cool. But we're just you know, James Conn got now. paid for that one scene. He got paid the same amount that he got paid for the entire first Godfather. Really? So, okay, so they shot that for this movie. That's not a, that's not something that wound up on the cutting room floor. No, they shot it for this movie and Brando was supposed to appear this. in it and at the last minute he was like, "No, nah, I don't want to do it." He didn't do it. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah. Wow. wow. But Abe Vigoda came back. God bless Abe you. Abe Vigoda, Vigoda came back. I think yeah. it's more powerful that you don't see Brando at the end. I, I actually think it, think it, it serves yeah. it better. It's the mystery. It's just like, oh, the, his birthday out in the hall. And the, the ghost, yeah. his ghost, you want to see him too. And you're imagining him in the hallway. Yep. It's it's yep. it's actually yep. perfect. It's perfect. And you've also Brando. got, and you know what? In some ways, I feel like that would take away. Well, I don't know if you can yeah, take away I, because De Niro's performance is so 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 brilliant uh, so you can't really take much no, away from that but he is the veto of this movie yes. he's the veto Corleone yes. of this movie so you d- almost don't want to see because they don't show right they don't show they don't show Brando's face even probably contractually too like if you show me you're gonna pay right. me because that was the same yeah. thing when he didn't want to do Superman too. They were like, they can't, yeah. you can't even show a clip of his face. Now you have to show his hands right. and this and that. But I think it's more powerful that you don't ever see that version of the character in this film. I think it works for the film. Yeah. And, you know, again, thinking about that scene, you know, he's got, Michael is, I, I think you get sort of, the more I think about it, the more, the more you go, well, wait a minute. The, he, he, he's not paying part of what Sonny's problem with him is there is that he's not, paying enough attention to the family. He's not paying tribute, you know, he's not understanding the legacy. Whereas Sonny, you know, is going, this is how you do this. You don't run off to, to fight in a war. You, you, but and, Michael's and, uh, actually you know? thinking he's above that. But the, the, the interesting thing is Michael's the one saying, I don't want to be sucked into this family. Exactly. He's trying to, to get do, out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to do yeah. what is, is expected. You know, he said, I think he yeah. says he's like my future. You've been, you've been talking about my future. Yeah. You know, right. he wants to get out and then. But then he ends up having to do it because Sonny, Sonny's dead and Fredo can't. 
And so out of duty, he has to take up the reins. But he's he's also not the guy to no None of the three sons are the guy to do, mm. to do this, to take over the family. Ultimately, you know, no. but Michael's the, the oddly enough, the Tom best. Hagen's probably the guy. But, exactly. no, but not even then, because, no, because right. Tom Hagen's not cold blooded enough. You know, those are great well, scenes, too, no, between Duval and Pacino. <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. No, but you're Duvall, right. You're Duvall's right. brilliant in it. You know, uh, my favorite is De Niro in the, in the whole thing. I mean, just, just seeing yeah. his, seeing his thought process, his progression, his, really his quiet sort of absorption of the life and how he could, you know, and, and how he could make it better for himself, his family, the Italian people, the community. It's all positive for him, you know, even mm-hmm. though he's murdering the evil dons, you know, Fenucci and Cheech, he, he's, he's. He's making he's he's making a better life for all. And that is the that's the end game for for that Vito Corleone. And, you know, um, Michael is really making a better life for no one. Mm. And uh, it's uh, um, uh, it's a yeah, it is a very, very, very sad movie. But I, I just love watching De Niro observe everything. Mm-hmm. And it's such an imaginative performance. How many? I'm going to go. What did I give Towering Inferno? Eight. <laughs> I'm going to go nine on the Godfather part two. Really? I'm going to go 10. Oh, oh I'm going I'm a full 10. 10. I'm 10 wow. on this. Yeah. I'd go higher if I could. The confusion doesn't bother me. I, I agree with you, Dan. I get confused too. And I decided this time, I'm like, I think that's what always kind of holds me back with this. And I'm going to mm-hmm. let that go and I'm going to look for other things. And I think that's where like the the themes and the relationship and, and like why the prequel sequel format and like how they informed each other. And, yes. and I focused on different things this time. And I think that's why it was I. a little more I wasn't, satisfying. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I know what you guys are saying. I just wasn't I, I, I wasn't kidding. I mean, I think I'm much smarter than you guys. You guys didn't like Blade Runner either. So that's probably what it is. You son of a bitch. Yeah, full, full, big, full. Give us a ten. little more Frankie Pantangeli. That was the best part of the podcast. Give us a little more. Yeah, Mike, Michael Corleone said, they said Michael Corleone did this. I said Michael Corleone did that. And I said, now, yeah, now, sure, why not? Now slowly morph to Farnsworth. Go from one to the other. And they said, Michael Corleone got on the tractor. And then Michael Corleone didn't get on the tractor. And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Henry was always talking about, we had a lot of buffers in the family. So I said, uh, yeah, sure. Well done, 1974. We had two movies that were seven hours long each. And then Young Frankenstein. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was a great one. It was a great one. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this latest episode of Opening Weekend. We will be back, as we said, uh, in a couple weeks time with our end of the year holiday party. We are going to give out some self-congratulatory Sheila's, uh, the second <laughs> annual Golden Sheila's Award. And we are going to uh, talk about the uh, the very first Lord of the Rings film, Peter Jackson's The Fellowship of the Ring, celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Uh, Dan, what you got to take us out? I'm pretty sure we need to do the theme from Towering Inferno. We'll never <laughs> love this way again. What was it called? No, we got to do a little... Yeah, ga 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 bing bang What about putting on the Ritz? I thought you were going to do that. Oh, okay. We'll do putting on the Ritz and then we'll do, well, we'll do Godfather theme first and then putting on the Ritz. That's good. That'll be good. Okay. Here we go.
I sound like uh, Pentangeli. Uh, <laughs> the opening weekend podcast is produced by Jason O'Connell, Fred Berman, and Dan Matisa, with editing by Jason O'Connell and sound mixing by Fred Berman. Additional help and technical support provided by Ethan Duff. Thank you for listening. So I said, uh, yeah, sure. Why not?